Um, so are we going to do it more focused this time? Yeah. Um, I have a couple, couple topics written down, some things I've been following that I'm, I'm interested in, and we don't necessarily have to hit on any of them in particularly, but, uh, I've been following a course like everybody else, some of the further developments of like NATO's war with Russia. Um, and, uh, I've also been following some of the ongoing, uh, heightening of the conflict in, uh, occupied Palestine, um, and across the West Asian like region. Um, and also I did want to talk about, cause we mentioned at the end of the last time we chatted, uh, this discussion of Europe, like does, does Europe exist and like Europeans and Euro Americans. So those are a few things. I have a couple other things written down, but does any of that interest you? Have you been following anything lately? Yeah, I mean, the uh, every day I wake up and I look and I say, what unspeakable evil have the imperialists done today? And that's basically my life. And obviously the chaos of the of the earthquake, of the fallout of the earthquake has been mm-hmm. um, has weighing has been weighing pretty heavily on me and uh it's not a good time it's not a good time in the world overall i would say we're in the midst of a pretty pretty like like um world encompassing kind of reorganization of the globe uh or sort of realignment people is a term people using there's essentially like this the what people have been talking about for a long time now um if people in terms of so-called the rise of china uh, this is something that's been a cliche now for 25 years, 30 years. It wasn't necessarily the rise of China. It was the rise of this. I mean, people like just today, the CIA director was on one of the nor- one of these news shows talking about the new axis of evil being China, Iran and Russia. So there is something very um, there is a big realignment happening in terms of uh, in terms of where countries uh, fall in respect to the global hegemons. Uh, and there are plural hegemons, global hegemons of the world. There are at least two, uh, three, if you count Russia. Um, so that, that is, uh, that's a pretty big moment. And we probably, probably like, I mean, like everything, those of us living through big changes, we probably don't understand or sort of grapple with the scale of it. Now, obviously I'm sort of making assumptions here about billions of people on the planet, but Obviously, people think about these things and they write about these things, but like ultimately, like these, like the consequences of this realignment will not be felt. Like they will be still be felt in like decades and like you know, fifty years, a hundred years to come. And we're living through this critical, critical juncture, which you know, it's it's there's no there's no real precedent for it insofar as like you know, sure, like there have been historical realignments of power in the world. There's been plenty. Um, it's just that the the nature of the world has never been so in favor of one country, namely the great Satan. And that power is giving way to a, to a, you know, to not somebody who's going to take its place per se, right? It's not like an inheritor of previous imperial powers. China is not inheriting the imperial legacies of the European states, for instance, which is essentially what the US, U.S. did post-war. And that's related to your other question um, in terms of like the, what is the existence of Europe? What is it today? What is it? That in reality, like that, yeah, the U.S. inherited that in power, if only because these formal imperial powers, you know, like Germany and France and, you know, the U.K., um, 
and even former is a pretty is a pretty uh, dicey word because France is still occupying huge huge parts of Africa. Their government has been slowly being asked to leave by various African governments, but like you know, they're, these imperial these imperial powers are still flexing their muscles. So as much as we like to talk about declines and changeover and realignments, the vestiges of that hard imperial power aren't just going to go away. And if anything, the U.S. will, and it seems to be looking that way, at least in the case of Ukraine, the U.S. would rather smash smash the planet and then let other powers kind of um, become as strong or stronger than it. So there's a lot of stuff that you mentioned that I think is very very much on my mind right now, especially to do with like the discussion of, you know, this idea of inheritance of the imperialist system. Uh, after the fall of, of course, World War One and World War Two, you had a shift from like the European powers more to like North America. Um, of course, I heard a discussion recently on uh, Ben Norton's program where um, Radhika Desai, Dr. Radhika Desai, had mentioned that hegemony, you know, is not like a, a rigid thing. It's dynamic where it's constantly in flux. Um, and so even from the period of like World War II on, the United States was constantly, you know, kind of shifting and pushing around the former European powers and the uh, different uh, neo-colonial states that it was developing around the world. And now you have a global imperialist system that, like you said, we don't necessarily have precedent for um, because of the economic, social, political, and especially military developments that have happened in human history. Um, and so now you have a nation, uh, namely the United States, but also its control over the NATO nations, um, having a real crisis where, of course, the way it's ruled the world can't go on in the same fashion due to the resistance and rebellions and the conflicts and contradictions which it has caused. Um, but it also isn't able or willing because of its economic and social you know, necessities to just let go of that power or of that system. It needs to find a new way to keep it in power. So uh like the different the different developments happening around the world in places like china or russia or iran or even you know smaller nations here thinking of like uh ethiopia or cuba or venezuela these movements these different shifts in the way that the power and hegemony has been structured for some time or trying to structure itself for some time is not necessarily that another imperialist nation is trying to take over, though Europe is trying to shift its weight. Like you said, France and other nations still have a hold in Africa um, and other European nations still have 
their own class conflicts, which they are in, engaging in. But uh, you have a economic kind of reality that necessitates this war because for the United States to, well, these wars, I should say, for the United States and NATO nations to stay in power, they can't let any nation really stand toe-to-toe with them, let alone if they are actually vying for the inheritance of the colonial system they've developed or not. Yeah, I mean, that's the nature, like the U.S. cannot allow, like the, the U.S. has kind of one setting uh, which is it's set to empire, you know, like that's just what it does. It's like, you know, it, it has this kind of it's this kind of geopolitical id that it just consumes enemies and spits them out and consumes their resources and feeds its own machine. Now, there's I, I'm of the I'm of the belief that, like, it's not that there's a there's a things happening that, like, on the one hand, you have countries around the world have caught up. Um, to the technical and uh, say the deterrence capabilities, like deterrent capabilities have caught up to the U.S. So that like, say, for instance, the DPRK, they just got nukes. They got nukes. It's OK. Like you want to attack us again the way you did in the 50s, the way you'd like you massacred like one fifth of our population. You genocided us and blew up our infrastructure. If you want to try that again, you'll get nuked. Like you'll get nuked. And they have these they have these missiles that they that they parade out. They're Hwasongs, I think. Um, uh, and that's a deterrent that tells the imperial powers that like okay yeah you can say all you want about the DPRK but if you actually move to like make any violence against them or try anything like it'll be the end of Washington Washington will have nuclear fallout so like just just drawing that boundary that sort of deterrence boundary changed changed uh, a lot of things for the DPRK now it doesn't seem to us because our our Orientalist media doesn't change its relation. It still, you know, cranks out the stories. You still have what's her name, Yanmi Park, I think is her name. Uh, the sort of like the 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 Siri the Siri the uh, DPRK sort of dissident du jour, who's like beloved by like the U.S. right wing and like Christian evangelicals. Like you still have these clowns who parade around who tell us everything evil that goes down, but like the U.S. can't do anything about it, and. That goes the same with China. That goes the same with you with Russia. Now with Russia, it's complicated. It's a bit more complicated because they nibbled at the edges of Russia in the sense that, like, that they and they openly said this. The Bush admitted to this that they were the or that era of Bush is that you have you had support of uh, different sort of breakaway groups uh, in in the two thousands and the nineties. Right, you have money going towards you know um, militant movements in the Caucasus with the explicit purpose of you know, breaking up Russia. And so like that, that's something that's the context of like modern Russia, like the modern country of Russia sort of like created in the wake of the fall of the Soviet Union. Like that's been a constant, at least that that idea that like the U.S. will work not only to sort of break apart large countries, but like larger countries, even that it's already broken apart, a.k.a. the USSR, which wasn't a country, it was a union of countries. But ultimately, it broke that up, and it's and it wasn't good enough to sort of pilfer Russia and to kind of do all that. That it tried even harder to further break it up, and so it supported these movements in, uh, you know, uh, you know, you had these kind of. It brought to power a lot of anti-Russian antagonists, who then accelerated, who then forced upon their own countries a kind of choice. It said, "Oh, do you, it's kind of Kramer versus Kramer. Do you do you do you go with this one or do you go with that one?" And that's what happened in Azer, That's what happened in Azerbaijan. That's what happens in um, 
uh, in the two sort of breakaway provinces there, the Abkhazia and uh, South Ossetia. And that's also what happened in Ukraine, is that they for the U.S. brought about a coup, helped bring about a coup in 2014 that said, okay, we're not, you're, you're going to have to make a choice. You can't, you have to pick, like, who do you love more, your Russian daddy or your U.S. one? And it forced Ukrainians to make a choice. And millions of those Ukrainians chose Russia. And that precipitated this war. And this war was then has now accelerated to 2022, where Russia began what it calls the so-called special military operation. Uh, it doesn't call it a war for legal and, you know, uh, sort of internal dynamic society reasons, social reasons. But nevertheless, this was a escalation. We can say it's escalation in terms of bringing the war that the U.S. helped initiate, that helped fed, uh, that was located in the kind of, um, in Lugansk, uh, Lugansk and uh, Donbass, the Donbass. Uh, what's the other half of the Donbass? Donbass, Lugansk, and uh, da, 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 da. Donetsk. Donetsk. Yeah, sorry, Donetsk and Lugansk or Luhansk, I've heard it. I don't speak Russian, so I'm just sort of taking the second hand. But ultimately, like, that's that's what happened. In, the, in 2014, they said, okay, everybody has to make a choice. Like, and that is what we're in, that that 2014 choice, which was also coincided with a coup d'etat that put into power the elements that are still in control of at least Western Ukraine. I mean, you can't really speak of Eastern Ukraine anymore because it's been lost, right? Like, that's, and that's, that's ultimately, and then what happens, you know, it just so happens that the U.S. benefits from it because all of that so-called aid that it's sending is just numbers on a screen that it prints, that like an that it sends to its military contractors, right? So war is a great business because you make money blowing stuff up, and then you make money cleaning it up, and then you have a and then you make money rebuilding it again. And in the meantime, you make deals on the side when those people have no choice and they have nothing, and they're destitute. The people you help blow up, either the ones on your side or or not, those people are forced to sort of sell off their resources. It's like you know pawn shop. Pawn, it's kind of pawnbroker geopolitics. You know, you break it, you bought it. And so the U.S. has now bought it, bought Ukraine with all of its chaos. Like Ukraine, modern Ukraine, that, you know, we have all these, like, performative actions for. Like, their alliance with the U.S. and the West has been a disaster for it. That's undeniably true. All, the, all those trolls who can say otherwise, you know, dream otherwise, is that this alliance with the U.S., was a disaster for the country. If it had just stuck to the Minsk agreements that were put into place, which, you know, as we know, the U.S. never had any intention of letting Ukraine fulfill. And that's how it does its business. So, like, we're, we're in this... And I think the, the, future, the future that the Ukraine is now seeing in its present, like the future that could be the future of the world, is that that could be the future of Taiwan, for instance, that they'll just happily sacrifice Taiwan so that they can get profits up for their GDP, right? Because you make so much money. There's no better business on the planet because like some of those, like, what is it? I saw a picture today of like this pile, you know, comical pile of anti-tank rockets and each one of them cost $250,000. I mean, that's insane. That's an insane number. That's an insane, like bonkers number that only late capitalism can produce. But it's the perfect business, which is why war is such a choice for these people it's such a it's such like it just makes them you know like you know wave their hands together and just like they get so excited because like oh my god like we get we get to make more money and we get to like stoke up all of the kind of race hate that we have in our own society and the media will take part and our corporations will take part and civil society will take part you know and the people who lose 
the ones who are on our side at least will make you know like sad documentaries about them will bring over a handful of them and call them refugees and kind of make cult make documentaries about them too and like it just the content machine takes over from there and like this is a sick sick and depraved machine and the u.s runs it and we just are like sitting here and watching it and trying to say like hey this is a bad idea and then people shut you down not only do they shout you down right but they then go on to cite <clears throat> similarly to i mean i was not i was three years old when it happened but like the invasion of afghanistan the invasion of iraq the invasion of uh and the bombing of the former yugoslavia um we have precedent set for what is happening in ukraine and what is happening in Syria and what is happening in Somalia and Eritrea and Ethiopia and what is happening in Palestine and what is happening around the world is that you have there's there's two there's two things I want to cover here so allow me to ramble for a moment but the first one being you have as we mentioned an economic necessity for war and also a economic benefit from war um, so as capitalism developed of course monopoly capitalism or the establishment of you know monopolies where you didn't have quote-unquote free trade anymore but you had these mergers and everything between the huge corporations huge oil industries the uh different mining corporations and of course in order to do that they had to colonize the world um, because the nations in europe that they came from only had so many limited resources so they had to go around the world um, of course, we know this starts at many different points for many different purposes in different nations, but colonization goes on to not only just enslave and steal the unpaid labor of the masses of indigenous populations of Africa, the Americas, and Asia, but also the resources, and then eventually the, as we were talking about, the the wealth and the, you know, the different institutions and the corporations and goes on to privatize the entirety of the state apparatus of the mode of production of the resources of the labor and that's exactly what Zelensky got on tv the other day to ask for he said you know come on in the water's fine the money you know throw it in here and we are selling off everything that can be bought um, this is in a country where trade unions are completely uh, banned in most cases, essentially, whether legally or effectively. This is another This is also a country where political parties and oppositional media is banned. Um, where not only just you know since 2014, because 2014 is when the Yanukovych uh, administration Yanukovych. was overthrown. Yeah, Yanukovych, yes. Um, and uh, when the different far-right and neo-fascist groups were aided by uh, the USAID and other forces. But if you draw it back all the way to like World War One and the Russian Revolution, Ukraine is, of course, the region where a majority of the European countries invaded the Soviet Union through. 
it is also the region where Stepan Bandera and a lot of the SS forces uh, helped to aid the Nazis and Hitler in the extermination of disabled people, of elderly, of children, etc., doing the jobs that Nazis in Germany and Poland and etc. refused to do or were disgusted by. Um, it's also a region where According to very available declassified CIA documents, since the 30s and 40s, far-right groups and nationalists have been receiving aid by arms, by training, by education, by money, by resources, right, um, all the way up to 2014. Um, and since then, of course, a lot of the aid that has been going there has been formerly, uh, you know, De what would you call it when you stop using military equipment because you have new technology? That yeah, a lot of decommissioned military equipment, not even necessarily just money, but effectively they give them the money to then buy the decommissioned military equipment from the European powers or from the U.S. That's why they were all frustrated when Latin America and Africa said they weren't going to sell military equipment to Ukraine. Um, because they are slowly but surely running out of their own reserves in order to fulfill the quota around the world. And this is the last point I want to make, that if eventually this type of system, this type of recolonization of the world does bring you to a point of global conflict, which is what World War I, World War II, and other you know subsequent wars that are commonly cited as proxy wars, like in Vietnam or in Korea, where the use of nuclear weapons were 100% uh, discussed and almost decided upon uh, in places like Syria right now, where a sizable majority of the U.S. oil reserves are being stolen from the oil production fields of the Syrian peoples. Uh, but also, you know, when it comes to Russia and China and these these nations that a lot of us have questions about, critiques about, I think what's most important to understand is that ultimately you have an imperialist system, global system, which inevitably will bring us to the brink of not only just global conflict, but nuclear fallout because of the development of the necessity for, like you were talking about, uh, these uh, deterrents where most nations around the world, developed nations, have some form of nuclear uh, arsenal or development or production for the sake of defense against a nation which is the only nation in the world to have used nuclear weapons in Nagasaki and Hiroshima. Um, so lastly, I should just finish on this point by saying that the... The need for a real militancy and a real understanding of the context with which the conflict in the Ukraine area is happening, uh, we, we're constantly failing to not only understand that ourselves, but to bring it to people. Um, and I, I think that's why I, I really have tried myself to, to learn as much as I can about this as uh, you, you know, even though I kind of get sick about hearing and talking about it. Yeah, no, I mean, it's... Um, Ukraine, yeah, that it's, is. It's like a... What do, you, what do you do in our position? We live in the global... And then we live in the imperial core. 
we make our lives here, we're, you know, for, I guess, for you, it's multiple generations of, you know, your family and everything. Like, your entire worldview was based in the imperial core. Mine as well. I mean, I was born in Iran, sure. But, like, my conscious life and all of my, like, material life, you know, I have relatives and stuff. But for all intents and purposes, like, I am a subject, I am a citizen subject of the imperial system of the U.S. sort of, you know, pan America, Pax Americana. Like, that's what we are. We're like the children of the neoliberal Pax Americana. And that's what we knew. Like, that's the Kool-Aid we had fed to us. So, like, watching watching the last, at the very least, you know, when, you know, my political consciousness has grown for the last 20, 25 years. Um, I'm, you know, I'm about to turn 40, which is crazy. But, like, my entire adult life and, you know, my teenagerhood, too, has been what what violent insanely violent thing is the u.s doing now and how are people selling it as freedom as like a good thing and that's like repeated over and over again and in some cases it's you know a lot of cases it's drawing up this scary boogeyman you know um in the case of saddam you know you had that in the case of saddam who was who we're happy happy who were we loved when you know he was doing dirty war on iran for the west but of course we turned on because he didn't he didn't heal quick enough to the imperial palace and also they wanted a soft target iraq was a soft target it didn't have any friends and same thing with libya libya was a soft target it didn't have any friends lots of resources and that's and that for me is really lesson i mean i've talked about this on my show a lot is like there are these countries that claim that try to sort of chart out this sovereign sovereign policies sovereign nationalist or national sort of policies right try to map out the course the future of their own countries and if the imperialists can, they will take those guys out, the people, and they will knock that country down, and they will do their best. I think what's happened overall is that they've run out of soft targets, that they've run after, they've run out of countries that they can just simply topple and take their resources in the case of Libya, in the case of Iraq, um, God knows how, and other ones too, right? Like, like when we, oh, this is before my time, but Grenada, right? Grenada, like they, they just took over. They just did like Maurice Bishop, they, they assassinated him. They sent in their planes. It was Reagan, no problem. Panama, same thing. To assure U.S. hegemony, they'll just, that's just like the, that's what hard power is for. You could just overwrite, you could overwrite, you know, sovereignty and just say, sorry, Uncle Sam's here. You've just gotten your first taste of freedom. So like you can do that. But in countries like Iran or China or Russia, you can't do that, right? There will be severe consequences. There will be violent you know, tens of thousands, if not hundreds, and in the case of Russia and China, millions of deaths because they have nuclear deterrent. So, like, you can't you can't simply do that. So you create other avenues. Now, the wars that the U.S. imperialists have fought against Russia via proxy wars, we know about those. And we also know that the China, they would do that against China, and the closest they have is supporting the so-called uh, East Turkestan independence movement, right, ETIM. Right, which is you know mostly based in the ethnic region, ethnic uh, Xinjiang region, which is mostly ethnic Muslims, right? Um, people who are still Chinese, but to my to our mind and to the mind of some degenerate right wing, you know, like regime change posse, they adopted the Uyghurs um, as this you know as this you know hypothetical you know minority group that was like perfect like you know that was oppressed under China, sent to genocide, you know, in the famous you know, the famous sort of tweets by, you know, that crank, like, clown, C.J. Whirlman. I mean, I hate to say his name, 
But like he had all these comments like, oh, five million, four million. Like he would just change the number based on his whatever he was making it up that day. We know that those figures that they would throw around come from one guy, Adrian Zenz, who like admitted the fact that there was like this own evidence is shaky. So like that's the most they can do. So like the fact that you hear so much from like the the, the regime change Inc. is so busy on China, on Russia is I think proof that like that's that's the only strength they have. They only have the ability to like find a bunch of useless compradors who will who will spin the war on China as like, oh, a liberation campaign as something good. And like that's what it can do. And that's all that it can do, really. Um Iran's a trickier case. Iran, I feel that the imperialists do have a little bit more um flex over in a sense. They do have allies within the country. They do have resources within the country. We see that. I think that most of that is has fallen to Israel. Israel is like their their main guy, but obviously the CIA does have does have some position in Iran. It's a question of how much and how often you can if you believe the report that came out of the mid two thousand tens is that Iran helped discover a kind of like um CIA ring and that kind of like set back their efforts now. You know, these are all the these stories are all, you know, you have to take random news stories and like Yahoo News at face value at a certain point and just to believe them. But ultimately, I think that the U.S. has reached a point where it can't push any harder on on the pressure points that it's, it itself has set up. Right. Like it made the Korean Peninsula a pressure point of its own power by invading and breaking and and um, essentially like partitioning the island of Korea. Uh, and the peninsula as between North and South, which is what it did because the communists got too strong. So they set up a bulwark there and they called it South Korea. And that's a loyal ally of the U.S. And it will it will sacrifice South Korea, too. Same with Taiwan. It's the same story. And so, like, this is I think that's the crisis point is that there aren't the abilities to kind of push out. Now, if you buy the sort of tragic, if you buy sort of classic understanding of imperialism by Vladimir Lenin, is that that's what imperialism is. It's the highest stage of capitalism because any sort of like any problems that em- empires have, they push outwards, right? Like when you're a profit, a crisis, when you have a crisis of profitability in your various economic sectors, you create a war, you gin up a war that will then give you an excuse to print, at least in the US, because it does have control over the printing machines. It, it can just print a bunch of money and then give that money, which is on a screen, there's no printing involved. Um, it's on a screen somewhere in Washington in the Treasury. It just gives its money to all these companies, and they call that aid package, right? Like they put a euphemism on it, but it's just that that money is just moving around in banks that are controlled by the West that like are part of the feeding system. So like that's like they can just do that, right? Like it's an act of God. It's an act of creation, um, and they can just make their economies run, and that will help a certain sector of their economy. And now. Mind you, there's this thing called, there is the whole other sector of the economy, the U.S. economy, which is a very human sector, which is mostly their service, their service sector, which is the largest, because they don't have manufacturing in the U.S. They don't have a strong manufacturing base. That's gone uh, because, you know, capitalists wanted to save money. So they outsourced their, their production to the global south. Now, there's a whole other beast with that, too, is that a lot of that production went to their country that they hate, supposedly, China. But we'll put a we'll put a cap in that. But like ultimately, like the nature of the U.S. economy, like thrives on I think the suffering of a lot of Americans because you can extract wealth from them at various stages, and that's that's also not just an American thing. That's a neoliberal thing. So like, oh yeah, guess what? Guess what just happened on this as a as a 
as a consequence of this Ukraine war. Energy prices went up drastically. So like the oil companies who were who aren't paying anymore for extracting, uh, although there is a crisis of extracted in the oil market and the oil market is very tough, but like they're not doing anything else. Their costs haven't gone up. However, their profits went up because of the price of oil, because the war did spark the does spike the price of oil. And I don't think it's ever coming back. You know, in, in Canada, they launched a kind of carbon tax to add to this price hike, and they call it a carbon tax. Uh, and it's really just like a wealth grab from the rest of society upwards, right? And they call it like taxes, but we know who pays the taxes in our society, and it's individuals, and it's not corporations, because corporations control our government. So like this system that we have now, this is how it's supposed to function, right? It sacrifices countries far away, far-flung countries. It sacrifices them for war and for you know, for whatever evil they can set up on them. It sets up this enemy, this demonic enemy that everybody can do their sort of two minutes of hate every morning called the news. And, and like, it's a beautiful thing. And like, you profit off of it. If you're like some, you know, like scumbag capitalist piece of shit, you can just like profit off of it. And you know, the, the culture industry kicks in and the news industry kicks in. And this is, this is how it's supposed to work. This is not a broken system. This is how it's designed. It's baked in. So like, the what the consequences of that will be on the populations of the US, Canada, whatever, that's a different story, right? Like we know that life quality is failing. We know that like the quality of life is falling rapidly and like all these various sort of like squeeze that these are the ways that like regular people have been squeezed by these wars is painful. What what does that mean to the elite who run the country? God, nothing. They don't care. They laugh as they eat their caviar and they're they're whatever like they laugh at them like you know like medieval like we're just medieval peasants to these people so like yeah that's the fucked up nature of our world that the people in charge of this they don't care they don't care like they don't care about the suffering that it's caused either directly in the wars that they help create or directly create or in the fallout the social fallout in their own countries where suddenly resources and austerity right like that's it there's always money for wars but can't feed the poor that's the great line from Tupac Yeah, Comrade Tupac, who was in the Young Communist Party, who was the nephew of uh, Black Panther Party members, who uh, actively joined the music industry for the purpose of introducing a more revolutionary and uplifting energy into the hip-hop industry until he was captured by Def Records uh, uh, and in prison and was... Uh, uh, cornered by the CIA and other intelligence operatives. There's many documentaries about that. Just wanted to throw that out there because it's so interesting. But um, interesting and fucked up. And also this goes on to the point that I wanted to make, which is that the ruling class can't and won't ever care about the suffering of the working class because they don't belong to that class. And unlike the working class and the oppressed peoples and nations around the world, they have the ability to educate and enlighten themselves on class consciousness in order to see the allegiances and alliances that they have to form, whether temporary or quote-unquote permanent, which are never permanent, um, alliances and, and friendships that they have to form in order to survive. And that's the difficulty when it comes to fighting you know, a system of imperialism. And it's also important to understand that when these... Uh, <clears throat> so-called representatives come along or these uh, social movements or these uh, 
different types of, uh, especially like social media campaigns, right? Especially like when you're talking about uh, Iran and the 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 supposed overthrow of the uh, Iranian revolution that's coming. Um, the uh, the CIA and the other ruling class uh, interests are there, not only in like name, right? But they got friends, they got connections, they got family members who get married off and go live in these countries and, you know, form think tanks and join oil corporation uh, board of directors like Joe Biden's kid in Ukraine in 2014. Um, uh, so it's important that we understand, you know, similarly to like uh, a labor relationship, right? Your boss is never going to have the same interests or the same concerns as you because they know that their existence as a boss is presupposed on your existence as a worker, on your existence as an exploited individual or group of individuals for the necessity of not only profit making, but the reproduction of that society. And that goes for all different forms of control. And I wanted to bring this up because I, I think it's important to understand that, um, you know, I think I think I've heard many other people smarter than me lead discussions on this. But uh, the question of power is uh, not only material in the sense of military force or economic control and political power, but it's also immaterial in the sense that people who are you know, colonized, who live in nations that are controlled by imperialism, uh, who have been enslaved or lived through apartheid and segregation, um, lived through constant war, go on to, folks go on to internalize parts of that system uh, in many different ways. One of those ways being going on to hating their own people. Um, and wanting to exploit and take advantage of their own people. And we see this all over the world. We see this in the United States with indigenous people, with African folks, with Latinos and Mexicans. We also see it with like the defectors that you were talking about, or with compradors and the you know petty bourgeoisie and the intelligentsia that develops in these nations where they have an economic and social interest in the continuation of this suffering. So they can never, whether they have a moral opposition to it or not, it doesn't quite matter. They can never have the full capacity to oppose this system unless they commit what we call class suicide, where they completely commit their selves, their capital or their industry or whatever they had, they get rid of it or they take the, the funds and use it towards revolutionary purposes or whatever they do. You've had many different examples of this, both from, uh, you know, kind of the top of the echelon of folks who uh, fall down from the petty bourgeoisie all the way to just like working folks who maybe originally were sold on the idea of fucking over their co-worker just to be able to make a quick buck who then go on to say, fuck that. I don't want to do that. I just want to live in a world where we all have what we need and we take care of one another. That's like a, a material and an immaterial action where you have to have the means to not only do so physically, but also the belief that it's possible.
and that that is like real in the sense of like uh like building a nation or building a political organization right you don't need to have a 501c to be a political organization you don't have to have a stamp of approval from your colonizer to say that you are an independent nation um but you do have to have the belief as a collective that this is real and that you have to be the ones to bring it into existence yeah i mean i i uh i feel like i mean there's there's a couple of things you brought up i mean the question is like every every society you can find people of all different like political strokes right like there's no there are far left iranians far right iranians there are all kinds of people who have different beliefs in say korea dprk or the south or whatever you want to call it like people have all human beings are very diverse minded people it's just the fear the curation of that political diversity in our corporate media that we see right and so you see a certain class of people who get who get um marketed as oh the voice of the blank and their their task principally today i think 20 years after the iraq war we have a very there's been a kind of like um development of the comprador sort of machinery such that instead of just one guy for instance as it was in 2003 one smarmy guy that nobody liked uh named ahmed chalabi uh, he who was like the sort of comprador face and the one it's what's happened i think overall i've been thinking about this a lot in the case of the iranian context um is that you've got the situation where the logic of kind of liberal acad like sort of rep liberal representation you know where you like oh like you know listen to blank people like the kind of cliche things are like oh you have to center the voices of blank right like that's when you when 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 you when you rely on kind of like uh that idea that oh the person the sort of the person who this person you know who represents in both meanings of the word um the opinions of this people the supposedly oppressed people and that's where it comes to that's how you get the sort of dissident character from whatever whatever nation it is like there's iranian dissidents there's north there's you know dprk there's all kinds of you know people who syrian ones whatever like russian ones that we then elevate as oh here's a good one right and so in the case of russia for instance who did they who did they elevate for a while and they kind of have dropped fucking navalny uh uh navalny navalny he like you know complete you know reactionary piece of shit you know like unliked in his own country and that's that's kind of the situation we're in now where you have this uh you know massive and especially in the case of iran because there's so much money in the iranian regime change machine that you have this whole vast apparatus of kind of dissidents whose job it is is to you know work in the media or some of them work in the media but they have a kind of front-facing role because they are public faces of dissidents right like of someone who is not in consonance with uh with their own country right and so that's that's how you get this business of so many you know replicating them but in the case of iran it's actually a double-edged sword because the big name one masi alinejad whose name is off mentioned on my show uh she her real name is masume she changed her name to christ or anointed one to you know placate or to sort of suggest the kind of flirtation with the hard right the u.s hard right which is her which is her main constituency now 
she, you know, she sort of branded herself as this kind of liberal reformist, whatever. And in Iran, she was with the sort of liberals. Um, she was friendly with them and then kind of became a dissident in the West. She sort of moved in 2009 and said, oh, you know, it's time for this revolution, time for a revolution. This can't be saved or this can't be reformed, whatever, traditional, sort of normal, whatever you want to call it, uh, trajectory for a comprador. But now in 2023, she's sitting there doing interviews with Jordan Peterson. I mean, Jordan Peterson talking to a feminist activist. I mean, that's all you need to hear to like laugh out loud about the kind of like sincerity of these people, like the most reactionary, patriarchal, stupid, lobster idiot, you know, like this guy, why is she, why is she sort of like talking to him as kind of an expert or some sort of insight on Iran women's revolution? I mean, it's laughable in its face, but it's because the constituencies, the political constituencies that fund and support Adinejad, they need her. It's more important for them to have him, to have her talking to clowns like clowns like Jordan Peterson. So like that's where that's where the sort of double-edged sword of being a member of regime changing can come up is that you she lost a lot of credibility. I noticed right away that people stopped tweeting her and whatever because of these kind of like who are these people you're allying with? I mean she's taking pictures with like Macron and Trudeau like the scummiest neoliberal monsters. People who would never so what kind of revolution these people support? would not be one you would get behind, a normal person would get behind. These are neoliberal imperialist monsters who don't care about revolutionary or like protest movements in their own country. Case in point, in Canada, they banned, they fucking banned and took away the, 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 the bank accounts of these, of these convoy, trucker convoy people. Now, do I give a shit about trucker convoy people? No, I don't give a fuck. Do they represent my interests? No, not necessarily. Do I care? No. However, when you stand, when you take away their right to protest and then you decry the supposed Iranian government's treatment of protesters, I mean, it's such like a, it's such like a, it's such a hack, obvious, you know, thing that, oh, it's democracy for thee, but not for me. Right. And that's, that's the strange, you know, upside down world that Iranian regime changes live in, you know, where the lives of certain protesters don't get for instance, if they're Palestinian or if they're Peruvian, for instance, or if they're part of, if they're supporting a government we don't like or supporting politics that we don't like, their deaths never get mourned. And yet the theoretical, the theoretical, like the mourning of, say, an Iranian anti-government protester, right, that gets mourned to no extent. And so that's a clear double standard that doesn't sit well for me that I refuse to live by. But God knows I know plenty of Iranians who have their careers here, who make their careers here. We're happy to live with that. I mean, and that's just that's just like a point where you have to like say like, oh, like is this media machine that's like hyper Zionist, that's like hyper imperialist, that doesn't give a shit about all these other revolutionary movements, but chooses this one and that one to focus on? I mean, are you going to see the hundreds of thousand, the hundred thousand plus protesters that are now in the streets in Tel Aviv? No, you're not going to hear a peep about them because it doesn't serve anybody's media interest the people at least who control it, but you will hear about the 900 or 1500 people in Tehran, right? That we're going at any given time. I mean, that's it. I mean, that's, that's the nutshell is that we have a media apparatus that kicks into high gear that sells a certain, that paints a certain picture of rebellion. And it's a very curated picture and it's a very precious picture, but ultimately it's a tiny, it represents tiny, tiny portion of the world. So like there are millions of people who would defend, say, the Islamic Republic now, what, you know, 
in an Iranian a theoretical Iranian civil war, what would that look like? Now, I don't want to fashion that. I don't. Want, that's an ugly thought, and I don't want to go there. But the people who take up arms against uh, the Islamic Republic would lose rather quickly to the people who the people who would take up arms to defend it. And that's part of the story that you never hear, that there are people who are willing to defend that system. Else, this is true for Venezuela. This is true for Cuba. Those people are willing to put their bodies on the line and defend that system. And that's not something that sits well with a lot of Iranian regime changers because it doesn't help their, it doesn't help their fantasy world of, oh, you know, if you invaded and blah, 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 you know, like this, which is, you know, a lot of them don't say this about Iran. They know better than to say this, but some of them hold out this dream. I think a lot of monarchists would, would love to see the U.S. wage a war, even if it meant the end of their own world system, although I don't think they actually mean that. I think that once they saw their own they, they saw their own decline of the U.S., which would happen as a result of a war with Iran, because there wouldn't be oil flowing from the Middle East at all, which would mean like like the banks seize up, like the oil, which is the figurative and literal, which is like the literal and figurative oil of our economic system, like it would just go away in a day. Like there wouldn't be the Straits of Hormuz would just be no boat, no tankers allowed, right? The the Suez Canal would be this would, would be blocked, right? Like global trade, as we know, global capitalism would end. And that's not even to say what would happen to the countries that are allied with the U.S. in case of a U.S. war with Iran. So this is always this is always on the back. This is always on like the the backdrop, which is why like the fetishization of the collapse from within is so intense, which is why you have such this crazy militancy for fantasizing about this proverbial Iranian protester, right, who may not be large in number, but has this force multiplier of these like massive media people outside of the country who reproduce and repost every single video. Could you imagine what like U.S. kind of resistance movements would look like if they had the kind of media power that the Iranian, Iranian, you know, like anti-government protesters do? Could you imagine what they would do with that? Like it would be it would be like unthinkable. However, that's not the case. So things that are small or even big by the U.S. standards, they peter out very quickly because we know that the corporate media doesn't cover that stuff. Or if they do, they cover it for a while and then they shut it down, right? Which is the case of the George Floyd protests. You know, so this is this is a pattern. And I think that like at the end of the day, you know, uh, the level of representation doesn't really matter much. It doesn't matter what some goofballs in New York say about you know, the coming to collapse of the Islamic Republic. It matters about what Iranians feel living there and what they have to say. What I have to say doesn't matter at all, which is what I try to keep in mind when I talk about it. But ultimately, at least in the case of Iran, you have this situation where like internally the country is not is not as disunited as you would you would think looking at the diaspora media. Now, does that mean there's widespread contentment? Oh, of course not. Of course not. Iran is a subject of neoliberalism the way that the rest of the world is. It's the sort of atmosphere we breathe. Now, what is the management of that economy? What is the management of Iranian state? How can you assess it? There's all these different ways. But doing this in the diaspora from the global north, this is a futile exercise. This is just a useless, pointless exercise. And you should just, I've, I've come to the point where I, you should just let the regime changers have the media and not fight back with them. Because there's no point. You're in a minority. They shout you down. They call you freak. They, they try to attack you, whatever. And you've accomplished, and you've, and what you've done is, there's nothing. You haven't added anything. Like, there's nothing I can add to the discourse around Iran that will help, quote unquote. All it will do is, all it will do is feed this machine. So for me, I've slowly sort of just taken a foot step away, and you know, like, let the regime changers have it. They can scream all they want. 
you know, about what's happening there because in the end, it doesn't change anything. You know, like what we say about anything doesn't matter. Not just Iran, but about Cuba, about other countries abroad. What we say about our healthcare system doesn't matter because we don't live in democracies. No human being has ever lived in a democratic country, fully 100% democratic country, because that's a platonic ideal. That's like a platonic ideal that we fashion in our minds first and foremost. But ultimately, countries are run by, by elites, and elites govern to various degrees, supposedly in the name of the people. But in reality, they do it on behalf of their other elites. Now, you can try to, you can try to uh, negotiate that. You could try to work that contradiction out, which I would think in a place like China, for instance, in a place like Cuba, for instance, has has worked out okay. Now it's different. It's different story in Cuba, where you have like sixty year blockade, economic blockade, by the world's most violent empire. It's not the same way in China. Uh, you don't have the same blockade tactic, siege warfare that they employ. They couldn't do that to China, uh, but on the whole, you have a situation where the elites who run those countries have done so in a name in the way that has benefited the large majority of the population. You can also say that to a to degree with the with the case of the Islamic Republic. Islamic Republic, yeah, they is run by elites. Yeah, there is this core group. You could call them the deep state. You could call them whatever. Um, but you can. Oh, but then you. How do you judge what that rule has looked like? I would say that based on the social metrics of you know like the various ones that we use, human development index, whatever you want to say that like there has been a success, there has been a vast great improvement of the quality of life of the average Iranian in the time of the 44 or 45 years since the downfall of the Shah. I mean just the 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 state the the, the thing that everybody looks at is literacy rates, right? Like and infant mortality, all that stuff, that stuff has dropped, right? I mean it was got like you know illiteracy rates have dropped which is to say literacy has gone up and infant mortality has dropped too. And all these sort of social signifiers of, of, of quality of life have shown that. Now you can make an argument. You can, if you're, you're listening to this, you hate the Iranian government, whatever, like I can't change your mind. I'm not going to, but like, I, I believe firmly that what we have to say in the diaspora matters like nothing. It doesn't matter. And if you like use that as like the outset for your politics, then you won't find yourself confidoring which is ultimately the goal of the imperialists. They want to find as many compradors as possible who will confirm for them their vision of, you know, the downfall. They either want compradors who are going to bite wholesale, hook, line, and sinker, or who are willing to sell their soul to the devil in order to convince enough people that they are biting hook, line, and sinker. Um, and I think in the case of, you know, the regime change efforts in um, most of, you know, West Asia, you have all different kinds of efforts. I remember the first time I watched that video of the, uh, the young girl from Kuwait who said that the... Naira, yeah, the daughter yeah. of the UAE ambassador, yeah. Yeah said that the Iraqi military had gone into a hospital and like thrown babies out of incubators or whatever and like left yeah. them on the floor to die and take all the medication and everything. And she, for folks who haven't seen it, it's on YouTube. You can find it pretty easily. But um, there's been all kinds of different tactics throughout 
the history of imperialism, I mean, you draw it all the way back to like the Spanish Inquisition, right? The propaganda and the media manipulation and the religious extremism and the social reproduction and exploitation that was used as the the methodology, the methodology and the ideology to get the masses of settlers to go and do the bidding, first and foremost, initially, uh, maybe in some case, the Spanish crown or whoever was paying them. But then effectively, they created a class of settlers and colonists who went on to have their own interests and their own things that they wanted to seek out. And that's where you get like compradorism. Again, you have individuals who are willing to sell their people for a piece of the pie. And what's I don't know what word to describe this. It's not funny. It's not ironic. It's not uh, ridiculous. But it's it's what it is is it's incredible to see how obvious it is that they will never be accepted at the table. Um, you know, individuals like maybe African leaders or uh, you know Israelis or. Uh, quote-unquote freedom fighters in Ukraine, they will never be at the same level as the ruling class and as, as you say, the elites that are actually ruling and controlling these things because <clears throat> they're being used as well themselves. And this isn't a, a pity party for the compradors. My point is that uh, it's it's... It creates the social phenomenon and the resistance that comes after it because of the obvious contradiction between what you are being told and what the reality is. The difference is, though, in the imperial core and in a lot of cases around the world, of course, the media and the, the way in which you see the world is filtered through <clears throat> a very narrow and controlled lens that you yourself don't really have the power to dictate. And in the case of, like you said, Cuba and China, and I would, you know, add to the list like Venezuela, Nicaragua, and uh, a couple other nations like Vietnam and the DPRK, the difference is that human society, right, is further organized to a point that they're reproducing and creating their own media, they're bringing their own knowledge and their own understanding of the world to people, and then trying to use that as a tool to actually further develop a different society. And as you said, you know, it, it works to different extents, it doesn't work to others. And the idea of socialism, right, is a is a process. And so in the case of, uh, you know, the Iranian Revolution, I got a homie who does uh, unmasking imperialism, the homie Ramiro, I don't know if you've ever checked out the program, but if not, you definitely should. Um, he was talking about the Iranian revolution a little bit ago, and he was talking about how a lot of like communist socialists or like leftists in general were making a big, you know, like uh, they were really getting upset with content creators or folks who were defending like when a lot of these quote unquote revelations came out about the uh, the morality police uh, shitting on people who were defending the fact that uh, Iranian pe our, our Iranian people should be able to decide their own uh, their own problems and figure out how to handle them themselves. And in the case of you know Iran, it might not necessarily be so 
uh, that it's like a socialist nation in the same way uh, that, you know, there are national liberation struggles around the world that aren't socialist. But again, the difference is that there is a, a popular organization that exists outside of the state as well that is fighting for and continuously working towards the building of a better society against siege warfare by the sanctions and the constant war against the opposition and against the infiltrators and against the CIA. There is ongoing struggle, which we don't focus on and pay attention to and learn about because in a lot of cases, uh, the organizations in the United States, but also uh, folks in the West in general have but like since birth been told to completely negate anything that isn't white or European um, and constantly uh, envision a third world or global south that is uh, in, you know, ashes uh, with constant impoverishment, death and struggle. And so when it happens that the U.S. says we're going to go over here and we're going to help, you know, so-and-so destroy this government and get rid of these uh, oppressive, you know, authoritarians for freedom and democracy. The majority of people hearing or reading or listening to that don't know who they're talking about, have no idea about these terms and phrases that they're using, don't have a conscious understanding of the ruling class nature of the government in their own country, also don't have an understanding of imperialism. And so it's very easy to convince millions of people just with a hashtag that this nation or this people group is oppressed and needs regime change. And who's going to do it? The good old U.S. of A. and everybody in the West who has a savior complex and an ego as big as, you know, the fucking colonial empires that have ever existed. They think that they are going to, as you say, change reality through posting, through cutting their hair, through burning flags, through causing further confusion and selling further oppression of uh, Iranians in the U.S. and internationally and of the West Asian populations generally because you know white people don't know how to tell or don't even know the difference between one people group in that region to the next. Um, but yeah, no, it's it's intentional in the sense that that's the only way that the imperialists can hold power. Um, and when you have, when you have a population that's so ignorant to the majority of the world's history and their own, um, it's very easy to keep that system reproducing itself. But that's just it. Is that like our own ignorant, like the value of our minds is so little to our system. Like it doesn't even even if people are against something, it doesn't matter to our elites. Like they don't care what we have to say, right? So like, so I always think that like that like what what do you do if you're like an Iranian regime changer? Your governments, the governments like living in the West, like your governments are already doing all they can to overthrow Islamic Republic. They have been doing it longer than you've been around, probably. 
right? Like they've been working assiduously for 45 years to overthrow the Islamic Republic. What, what, is, what is it for you to do? Like when, who's that woman, Juliette Binoche, who like cut her hair? What, what does that do other than show to everyone who sees that post or that news that she is on the good guy's side, right? It's just cloud. cheap publicity. Exactly that. For, yeah, it's cloud. It's cloud. And like you watch like, I subjected myself to like Iranian, oh, this was hell. This was a bad couple of weeks, but I subjected myself to like Iranian regime change TikTok and like a bunch <sighs> of like, a bunch of like clowns like who are farming clout off of dead Iranians who are like sitting there breaking news out of Iran. Somebody farted on a subway and it said, and that's like, what? Like that urgency and that like pathetic. Meanwhile, like they have like, one of them is like, oh, stop executions in Tehran. They love hashtags. They live in 2009, apparently. And they like love their hashtags. So like, or like 2006 even, but like their, their hashtag is stop executions in Iran. But of course, it makes you like beg the question, what about the executions in the US? Like, what about those? And like, that's, that's where like nativity comes in. Like, oh, I'm a, I'm a diaspora member of Iran, so I can focus on Iran and not say anything about the many, many executions. Like the 10 a day, like there was 10 the other day, death by cop. Like there was 10, like people murdered by cops in the US, like just the other day. And like, you'll never hear about those people. But you will hear about Massa Amini on every single news broadcast. And like some Iranians will say, and I've had people who come up to my Twitter and or whatever who say this to me that, oh, you can be against both, you big hypocrite. It's like, okay, I mean, like, yeah, be against both. But our media is only talking about one, right? Our media like only pays you to talk about one of those deaths and not the other one. So like, I'm not willing to live in that double standard. I'm not willing to say, Iranians' lives matter far above and beyond the lives of American proletarians, for instance, who are killed by cops every day. I'm not going to, I'm not, and which is, which is what you're implicitly doing when you join on these kind of like info campaigns, these like waves of, of like information, sort of like assault, I kind of call them, which is what happened in the case of Iran. Like you're not going to hear about the dead Americans. You're not going to hear about the dead indigenous people. Like the skulls that our societies are built on that they produce every day at home and abroad. Like you're not going to hear about them, but you will hear about the Islamic Republic. I'm just simply not okay living in that double standard. I don't think it, I don't think it helps anyone. It does, it's not fair. It's not like, it's not acceptable in any way that like the violence of one entity is so intensely studied whereas there's silence and this is not even to mention a little state you may have heard of called israel right which does the things that iran is accused of every day it does them every day you never hear about it so you know what fuck you iranian regime changers fuck you i am not gonna participate in that double standard and if you get mad at me go and fucking shit your pants shit your stupid ass diapers your red white and blue diapers until you die okay that's my message to you if you're listening to this you probably won't be but maybe you can pass them around to people who will hear this i will i will live until the end of my days and you won't see a fucking criticism of israel to the fraction a tiny fraction of you will of iran and until that situation is corrected i'm not going to participate in the shitty things happen in iran every day yes i think bad things happen injustice happens every day but they happen around the world and you only hear about the one in iran and that is the crux of it 
that's the core of our media system is that you have a curated curated news we have a curated news apparatus that hyper focuses on some countries and lets other countries get away with it um i think we've been going at it for over an hour i'm i'm kind of running out of steam i'm also kind of hungry so we should probably wrap things up i can do with some food um okay well before we go i got one question for you um just because I want to end it on something. Um, I've heard you do some commentary on different like movies and TV shows um, with like the Red Nation and then with Ben Norton and a couple others. Um, what are some movies and TV shows that folks should check out to not want to shit themselves to death? Oh, oh, hard to say. I mean... It's hard to say if you like what I watched, I watched the other day. Um, I'd seen it before, but it's a very good, very dark. It's pretty violent. So it's not for the faint of heart, but um, the wind that shakes the barley, it's about the Irish. It's about the Irish liberation struggle. That's a fantastic movie um, that I would whole wholeheartedly recommend. And that, yeah, that is, that's something I would recommend. Yeah. Watch the wind that shakes the barley. Ken Loach, I think, right? Yeah. Ken Loach that's uh that's a good suggestion i've uh had it come up on my twitter feed before and i hadn't checked it out because i uh usually am not a big movie or tv watcher but um speaking of british colonialism uh i also watched not too long ago it was uh a little little liberally but uh pride which is about Welsh miners um, joining with uh, uh, LGBTQ plus movement, I think in the eighties. Um, so that was pretty cool as well. That, that was on uh, HBO max, I think. Um, and also check out exterminate all the brutes. Uh, that was a, a good series, but yeah, you got any other suggestions? Um, Burn by Guillermo Pontecorvo. I also watched that a few weeks ago. That was really good. Burn. It's with like an exclamation mark. Um, it's got it's got Marlon Brando. Uh, it's pretty cool. It's pretty cool. Well, there you go. There's four different shows to check out that uh, and movies that uh, hopefully will definitely not throw you into an existential crisis further but <laughs> anyways yo Cena, <laughs> it was great talking with you my friend finally being able to get this down and get this recorded